Amen. Thank you, Chris. You may be seated. I want to welcome you to worship this morning at Bethel Downtown. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. And I want to jump right in this morning into our passage because we are in a summer sermon series, off and on, generally speaking, through the summer months here at Bethel. We're walking through a variety of psalms, not exactly in order. So for those of you who are going to absolutely just go into some anaphylactic shock because your OCD has been violated, then I'm not going in order. Take a breath. It's going to be okay. Last week we were in Psalm 1, and it was, I think, a marvelous passage for us to open up. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 126. So if you got your Bible, please go directly to Psalm 126. It's a quick little psalm, but it is power-packed, and it is poignant for every person on the planet. So I'm going to read it. We'll set it up a little bit. We'll try to unpack it, and then we'll see how we can apply it. Pretty briefly and efficiently this morning, now that we've worshipped together, keep that in mind. We've worshipped together. We agreed with one another. We declared the Lord's excellencies, His work in redemption, His work in salvation, His work in loving us. Now we're going to unpack God's Word, and we're going to see that this has been God's plan all along. So Psalm 126, you might have a superscript reading, a little bit of a title above the psalm that says, A Song of Ascents. We'll talk about that in a moment. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we prepare to see what the Lord has for us in this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity, as has been sung and as has been spoken already, for the opportunity to be gathered together in your presence, knowing that you are present by your spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would stay or remove every distraction, every sin that so easily entangles that you would focus our hearts, affection, our minds, attention on you, the greatest communicator in the cosmos, wanting to connect with every person in this room. So would you do precisely that? Father, we know that if and when you do that, we will be changed, and we will be careful to give you the glory for that, and you are worth our investment. So we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, you might not have heard it super clearly as I read through Psalm 126, but I want to talk about the concept of time. What is it to live the life that we do in time? It's been said that time marches on. Time waits for no one. Now, I say the same thing almost every summer. We get through a very busy spring school year. The church calendar often maps up a lot to the school calendar, and we get into the month of June, and I think, I can't believe we're already here, and at the same time, I'm thinking, uh, what took so long? Uh, 
And, and so we find ourselves here almost at the exact center of our calendar year. Depending on what you're doing, depending on what you're experiencing, time can seem to fly by. Or if you're having some sort of non-anesthesia medical procedure, time can sort of grind by very, very slowly. Depends on what you're actually experiencing. And our psalmists know this about us. Time happens to every single one of us. I love the fact that our Bibles read us in a lot of ways more than we read them. King Solomon, in his book, Kohelet, which means the teacher in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, he has something interesting to say about the concept of time. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11, he writes, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, praise God, hmm? nor the battle to the strong, praise God, nor bread to the wise, praise God, nor riches to the intelligent, praise God, nor favor to those with knowledge, praise God. But time and chance happen to them all. Which has led people to say, so does everything happen for a reason? Or does everything happen in time? And if and when it does, how do we respond to that? So here at the center of our calendar year, almost, as we mark the passage of time from what we've already experienced and what we anticipate is what's to come, how are we really supposed to pass the time? And how do we do so wisely? We live in an interesting era and in an interesting age of the already and not yet. On the one hand, Messiah has come. We have experienced, though not personally, we have experienced first advent. Messiah has come. Believers are now in this age indwelled by God's Spirit. The third member of the Trinity indwells every single believer. He literally could not be closer to us in this age. And yet, we still feel and experience pain and sorrow. He couldn't be closer, and yet as time passes, we have good times and bad times. We have excitement and joy. We have pain and sorrow and grief. How are we to make sense of that since God has already done a thing? How does God intend for us to feel about this time that passes in each of our lives? Well, this is where we have a tendency to uh, try to make sense of it in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own relationships. We tend to default to this notion of, yeah, but really. I get the whole thing that Jesus was laid in a manger, and he was probably 7.2 pounds, and he was Caucasian, and there was... No, no, and again, no. We say, yeah, I get it, but really, I still got my life to live in the here and now. No, that is a misunderstanding of the glory and the nearness of the gospel. All of us deal with the tension of experience, the struggle between what we read in God's Word and what seems to actually occur in our moment-by-moment world when we leave these walls. Are we just passing time, treading water in some pool of existence, or is there really a point to our lives, and what's the meaning? Well, Psalm 126, though ancient, at least 2,500 years old, is a great psalm to answer these fundamental human questions. It's going to tell us a lot of things about who God is, what he has done, and therefore who we are. Now, if you and I can maintain the answers to those three questions, that actually gives us the fuel and the focus for living every day of our lives, every hour of our lives, every moment of our lives, remembering who God is, what he has done, and who he has declared me to be. And so, 
Psalm 126 is a great reminder. It sets us up for our big idea this morning in our second psalm in our series. And our big idea goes like this. God still does what God has done. Can I just invite you to be still and quiet and think about that for a moment? Because I will tell you, even at this campus of a conservative evangelical Protestant Bible church, I speak to a great many people that do not functionally believe that. They're grateful that God did a thing 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But ever since, life's been kind of lousy. No. The overwhelming refrain between the table of contents and the maps is that God still does what God has done. It is left to us, therefore, to set our expectations accordingly. Now, we are in a series on the Psalms. And I want to remind you, we're going to do several Psalms this whole summer season. Psalms lead us to intellectual stimulation. They, they work on our minds, on our brains. They're intended us to help us to think through what goes on in life, to meditate on these, just like they were supposed to meditate on the first five books of the Pentateuch. They were supposed to meditate on the Psalms. The Psalms are the, the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. It was the, the hymn book as they ascended Temple Mount several times a year. This is what they would declare about God who he was, what he had done, and therefore who they were. Next time they would gather, they would get together, and all of them, fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and nephews and grandparents, they would say, this is who our God is. This is what he is like and what he has done. This is therefore who we are. Because time would have passed between, do you see? Psalms lead us to be provoked emotionally. They're, they're poems, they're artful, they evoke rhythm and emotional response. One writer put it this way, the reason human beings express truth with music and poetry is to awaken and express emotions that fit the truth. The Psalms lead us to life with God. So this last week, I would argue that there is no point in thinking nor feeling apart from God. It is all meaningless. It is all vanity, Solomon said 3,000 years ago. The Psalms are inspired by God. So they are his word for how we are to live and know and experience him now, we know they're inspired because God said so, because Jesus thought and taught so, and all the apostles also said that the Psalms were God's inspired word. They are the most quoted book in the New Testament. So when we read and sing and meditate on the Psalms, our minds and our hearts, our thinking and our feeling are being shaped, and they're literally being changed by God. That's how it happens, and that's what we're in it for. The psalmists, they realize that we're complex beings that are driven by both head and heart, and those influences jockey for our position all the time. They realize that we as a species were created in God's image, and we are created for delight. We were actually created for happiness. And yet, astonishingly, God gives us the capacity to choose what will make us happy. I would never do it that way, but God's not insecure like me. God gives us the capacity to choose. He is sovereign. He is good. He really is loving and faithful. Now, with all of that as a run-up, Psalm 126. Psalm 126, I must confess, falls in what is probably my favorite section of the Psalms. Psalm 126 sits in what we call the Psalms of Ascent. Now, I'm also going to say transparently and very just vulnerably here, for a guy with a mild lisp, saying psalms and ascent and summer and season is just a <laughs> slow, painful death. So I apologize for all the precipitation that's happening here in the front couple rows. I'm doing my best. 
there's a lot of S's in this whole 150-chapter book, okay? So sorry, next week, sit back there. <laughs> Psalms 120 through 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. Now, come on, don't, don't just sit there occupying a brown seat without seeing this. I, I want you to, to, to visualize the scene Texturally, I want you to feel the texture, to, to smell to, the, the, the smells, to, to hear the sounds. The Psalms of Ascent were at a minimum for every time there was a festival in Jerusalem. There were three in particular. When all of the people were commanded to come into Jerusalem and the population would swell. And Psalm 120 through 134, that means there are 15 of them. There are 15 steps that the Levites and the priests would ascend Temple Mount. And they would come all the way up, going up in elevation, all the way to Jerusalem. And all the people all along the way would be chanting these in beautiful, disharmonic, antiphonal Hebrew. And they would, they would sing the, the little two-verse psalm of Psalm 117 about God and the nations as they approached Jerusalem. And you could hear the sound echoing around Temple Mount through the Kidron Valley. You could hear this. And all the people who were coming from the north, they were chanting these psalms. And you were coming from the south, and you were chanting these psalms. But as you got into Jerusalem, and as you approached Temple Mount, there are 15 steps. And the priests and the Levites, who were actually carrying all of the ordinance up for worship for the nation of Israel, they would stop on each step. And on the first step, they would do Psalm 120. And the whole nation would participate. Because the fathers had been teaching their children all year long to recite Psalm 120. And then they'd go one more step. Psalm 121. Some of you are very familiar with Psalm 121. I look to the hills. Where does my hope come from? My help comes from God. And they would do Psalm 121. The whole nation, led by the Levites and the priests, as they went up and as they went up, and the sounds and the smells of all of that humanity. Finally, they get to the sixth step, Psalm 126. Now, it's fascinating to me. Psalm 126, you'll see here in a moment, was almost certainly written after the return of the exiles from Babylon and Persia. Now, that's interesting. Last week, we looked at Psalm 1 that was written probably about the time of David, if it wasn't written by David, probably 3,000 years old for us. But about 500 years later, we get this psalm that makes it into the Psalms of Ascent. Not how I would do it. Let me explain. Once upon a time, there were people. And these people... Well, how shall I say this? Well, they were lousy. They were by nature God-haters. From Genesis 3 through 11, you've got people and generations and people and generations and people and generations who will not have this God as their God. Finally culminating in Genesis 11, when all of the peoples, all of the nations gather together and they say, we will ascend on high. Ah, we will build for ourselves a tower, a ziggurat. We will punch through the veil of the heavens and we will for ourselves be God. God says, you know what? I haven't prayed about this. No. And he scatters them. And he confuses their languages. And then he says something really fascinating, and you need to know this. Genesis 12, I'm going to create something out of nothing. Because that's what God does. 
There was nothing. There was chaos. There was void. There was scattered and splattered people groups. And God says, I'm going to create something out of nothing, and I'm going to do so through one unexpected, unusual suspect. And he finds a guy named Abram, a pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife in Babylon. And that's how you're going to start the nation of Israel? You betcha. And he does. And he brings them. And we have, after half of human history, we go into Genesis 12, and we have the rise of the nation of Israel, the covenant community, the messianic people. And they are to be a light in a dark world, representing and resembling the kingdom, the coming kingdom of Yahweh, literally manifest on earth. And they even have a soundtrack. Pretty soon they begin to produce psalms. Some of the psalms are written by Moses. Did you know that? Some of the psalms are 500 years older than David, and they begin to produce a soundtrack so they can have this mixtape, and they can all pop it in their camel, and they're all singing the songs about Yahweh together. But then the people begin to absorb their surroundings rather than be a light to their surroundings, and they begin to drift from the fidelity of faith in Yahweh. And they begin to drift, so much so that it only takes about mm, a thousand years and God drops a death sentence on his own son, Israel. They're out. They're done. I promised you this land, but you rebelled. You recoiled. You refused again and again and again. You're out. And for 70 years, they are out. Why? Because God's cranky? Because he's just fussy? Because he was just got his feelings hurt? No, because he promised. And to not make good on his promise would serve to un-God God, and he cannot do that. That's the one thing he cannot do. And so they are out of the land. There is a separation from where they are supposed to be and where they are. And for seven years, and many of them die off, finally, King Cyrus just has a wild hair of an idea. I know what I'll do. Uh, I'm going to send all the Jews back to Jerusalem, and, uh, and I'm going to pay for it. Like, where did that, well, the book of Isaiah tells us that God stirred in King Cyrus' heart to send them back and to more than fully finance the entire venture. Now that is sovereignty. Thank you very much, our God. So we have this psalm that talks about how they experienced time, and now they have come back out of exile. They've gathered together in a post-exilic Israel. All Israel is gathered back together. They are rebuilding the temple. And they begin to say, this is, this is what we see about our God. This is what he does. We have this God that exists in and out of time. Based on what's happened, based on who God is, how? How do we wait well? How do we live confidently with joy in the midst of sorrows? See, because we're always going to experience the passing of time, this succession of moments. It's the part of the human experience that makes us who we are. The things that happened in the past inform our present and prepare us for the future. Proverbs says that the man who is wise considers these things, is aware that, hey, that happened in the past. That's impacting my present. That's going to have bearing on my future. But the fool does not consider these things. And so God's given us his word to provide this abundant truth so that we don't do life according to our own common sense so that we can do theology together and make sense of life. God's not left us exasperated. He wants us to know what to do. So let's do it. This psalm gives us this wonderful timescape of past and present and future, because that's the story of all of our lives. Each of us has a past. We all, I hope, have a present, and Lord willing, we all have a future. That's the story of Scripture. Again, 
who God is, what God has done, and who we are as a result. This psalm is telling us all three of, this, of these time frames. So Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. God is the one and the only one who can restore a human life. Now, I don't want to get all uh, preachy, which is ironic because that's what I do for a living. Every other entity, individual, and institution is in some way trying to promise restoration for your life. And they are all dangerously unqualified. Whether it's a government program, uh, educational policy, a TikTok video, none of it. Maybe some latest kelp-infused foundation cream. I'm sorry. None of those things can actually restore your life. God is the only one who can restore our lives. And not only that, but please notice, God doesn't just restore their lives when they come out of exile and leave them at the gate. Well, good luck. Whoops. See you in three generations. No. He restores their fortunes. Why? Because they deserved it. <laughs> Hardly. No, they betrayed, they rebelled again and again. Even in exile, it wasn't like they were really crushing it spiritually. But God returned them and he restored their fortunes. This is our God's grace and he is good. He's even gooder than you and I can imagine. This was so brought to us and in this wonderful moment of parental clarity, a number of years ago, we sat down and we decided finally he was just old enough. Our oldest son, Ethan, was probably three or four years old. And we finally decided to introduce him to the glories of Bluebell ice cream. Ah! And we sat him down and we had talked it up quite a bit. And we had said, this is going to be great. It's going to change your life. It's going to melt your face. It's going to do all these things. And he finally sat down and he licked his lips. And he said, I bet this ice cream is even better than I think it is. And I went, and it was. And I thought, how marvelous that a three or four-year-old thinks that about a bowl of bluebell ice cream, but I don't even think that about my God. I bet he's even better than I think he is because he is. God is the one that restores. It's such a profound statement combating, combating and contrasting the secular humanism of our day. See, historians, secular historians, would look at the rescue and the restoration from the Babylonian exile as an act of King Cyrus. Oh, they give him credit for it. But all the nations in that day, they knew only God could do that. The Lord stirred in Cyrus' heart to finance the mission. Now, some have said, well, maybe this is not really about the return uh, after the Babylonian exile. Maybe this has to do with something else. And true, there were several times when Israel was beaten down because of their disobedience. God raised up different people, groups, and tribes. But almost certainly everyone agrees this has to do with the return from the exile in Babylon. And there are two of those instances in your Old Testament. Of course, the greatest is the Exodus, where God's new covenant community, his messianic people, he brings them through death into life, led by one, the Exodus event, out of Egypt into a land of prosperity. That is one massive return out of exile, you might say. This one is yet another one. In both cases, it was their failure and foolishness and inability to trust in the goodness and the grace and the glory and the strength and the might and the character of God. And yet God brings them back 
anyway. Pretty incredible. It's the first time this happened in Exodus. The second time it happens coming out of Babylon. Now, I should point out, in all of human history, this is outside of our Bible, in all of human history, no nation ever has returned to, from exile to form a nation again. No nation ever, not in human history. But Israel has done it twice because God's restoring and redemptive rescue. So he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream, or some of your translations might say those who had been returned to health. We were terminal. We were dead. The, the, the EKG machine was flatlining, but he gave us life. It was like we were dreaming. Like we, it was so good. It was almost too good to be true, but God did this, not because we deserved it, but because of his goodness and because of his grace. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Maybe you and I don't fully realize it, but this is the same kind of rescue, but more so that we have experienced if we have been redeemed by God. It really is. We were slaves to our sin, and the path was hopeless, and it was a descent to our own depravity. There was no possible outcome of happiness. We were victims of our own darkness, and there was only despair and death around the corner. Ah, but he made this dead soul alive. We see that in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. This is what the Apostle Paul is picking up on. And so there's joy. It's not a condition determined by circumstance, but by a pre-existing reality. There's an inward reality and recognition that leads to an outward expression. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy named Dallas Willard, now with the Lord. But he puts it this way. And I love this because it's so true. And I have to remind myself of this daily as I walk through time. He says, full joy is our first line of defense against weakness, failure, and disease of mind and body. Can I read that again? Because this is life transforming. He says, full joy is our first line of defense against weakness, failure, and disease of mind and body. Because when we don't have full joy, we will try to pursue it any place else we can, and we will settle for less than noble substitutes. Another one of our heroes, Jay Montgomery Boyce, says there are four types of joy that we tend to lose as Christians. Perhaps you can relate to one or three or four of them, because I certainly can. The four types of joy that we tend to lose as Christians, the joy of salvation, you forget just how dead and wretched you were, how apart from God's household you were, how far and running hard in the wrong way you were. You forget. And I talked to someone just the other week, and they said, gosh, I, I just couldn't become a Christian because I just couldn't believe that it was that easy. And when I realized that God loved me and it was that easy, not for him but for me, I was overjoyed. Sometimes we forget the joy of our salvation. There will never Never be a time when I will not be loved by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Bride of Christ. Never. We forget that joy. And so we have to be reminded. The joy of spiritual victory. You've, have there ever been a time when you prayed and people prayed for you and you were going through a thing and the Lord delivered? I know there's been times when that didn't happen. But have there been times that you could point back to and go, this was a milepost. Look what God did. And you raise a standing stone in the Old Testament sense, an Ebenezer perhaps. We forget the joy of Christian fellowship. I know people, I know they're the worst. No. They are eternal 
beings loved by the Father, in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, and there will never be a time in all eternity when you will not know one another. We forget that joy. We tend to start to think and view others as in the way. But no, no, they are the way. And then we forget the joy of a new work for God. If all you have in your car is a rearview mirror and there is no windshield, you're not safe. Yes, we want to remember that which God has done in us and those victories. Yes, we want to remember our salvation. Yes, we want to remember Christian fellowship. But what is God doing in, through, and with me lately? There is joy in that. These joys must be our present reality, and they are offered presently. It's interesting. The joy of the redeemed led the pagan nations, in Hebrew, the goyim, the peoples around Israel, to recognize God. Now, that's amazing. You know that that's one of the reasons God gives us joy, not just so that we will feel better? No, so that we may respond out of joy to the extent that others around us take note. And God gets the credit. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 4, 3, 1 Peter 3, Always be ready to give an answer for the hope and the joy that you have, and do so with gentleness and respect. It becomes unusual and uncanny when you're walking around as a person with joy who is, by very nature, practicing the defense against the dark arts, we might say. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This is a nice little pivot from the past tense to the present tense, and it hinges on a confession or remembrance of what God has done. The psalmist agrees with what the nations are saying. And see, sometimes we need to preach a little sermon to our own soul to recall and remind and recount that which God has done. Hey, soul, remember, you are a loser and yet loved immeasurably. I say this all the time, that Christianity is learning to live like you're loved despite all the evidence to the contrary. You are loved, accepted, even liked by this sovereign God. See, God still does what God has done. Well, verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, times have shifted in the, in the narrative here about what's going on. Time has shifted. We're now in the present tense. He asks boldly for blessing and prosperity, hearkening back to what God has done before. So his prayer is rooted in who God is and what God has done beforehand. Not, hey God, I have paid most of my taxes. I rarely speed in school zones. How about a little blessing? No, you've done this for us already, God. Would you do this again? Boldly, because the psalmist seems to claim that God still does what God has done. He does good theology here. He asks now, based on what God has done in the past, he knows, God does still do what God has done. The request is for a sudden bursting forth of blessing. He references the Negev Desert. It is dry. It is the surface of the moon. It's like Mars. But every once in a while, it does rain. And when it rains, you don't actually feel the rain. It doesn't rain on you in the Negev Desert. You're just standing there by a wadi, which is a dry riverbed, and all of a sudden you hear a rumble, and you think, is that thunder? No. It's about a six-foot-high wall of water shooting down the riverbed. And you better not be in it, or you'll be gone. That's the kind of blessing that the psalmist is praying for. Hey, you brought us out of Babylon. You brought us out of Egypt. You brought me out of my own sin and death. Would you break forth in blessing like aggressively, like raucously? Not because I deserve it, but because that's the kind of God that you are. And the nations will take note. 
Now, I don't know of a whole lot of evangelical, Protestant, conservative Christians that pray that way. Why? Because we don't want to be the dorks on TV. I get it. I get it. But that's just too bad. I, I understand. And by the way, if you're praying for some very specific material thing, God loves you way too much to give you that settled thing. But when you pray for your family members to have the scales of disbelief ripped off, when you pray for the, the marriage of your children or the marriage of your neighbors or your siblings to somehow bust forth like a river blowing through the Negev desert, and you just pray for that, 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 and the next thing you know, you're dead. And maybe God's going to do a thing that you never anticipated or imagined because he really is gooder than you can think. That's how we are to pray. Look, you brought me out of Egypt. You brought me out of Babylon. You brought me out of my own pit of depravity. Would you do this thing? Would you do this for them, what you have done for me? Okay, a minute's passed. Would you do this for them, what you have done for me? And that's how we are to live our lives in time. It solves the whole conundrum of, what do we do with this whole monotonous, yeah, but really kind of life? We don't want to look like dorks, but here's the deal. God knows that we already are. And we do too. And it's okay. We're not turning into some prosperity gospel kind of nonsense, not at all. We root our prayer life in what God has already done. Well, verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. This is one of the most foundational and (sighs) flummoxing verses in the whole of your Bible. This is good therapy. Let me read it again, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's a little bit of a poetic expression, what he's saying. When we are led through times of grief and suffering and resistance and trouble and turmoil, those tears, those griefs, God actually plants them as seeds for joy. So much of the time, we simply want God to take it away. But God is sovereign, and he is good, and he is using it. He switches metaphors from a riverbed blowing through the Negev Desert to this agricultural idea. we're, We're actually experiencing grief, but God is actually using it in us. It's a picture for our working and for our doing. He's working for our restoration, not us. He's looking at the way things could be. He's remembering that there are others who have yet to be freed, yet to be restored. He's looking ahead to the efforts that will be required to bring them into the fold of the family of God. And his confession is, hey, this is going to be painful. There will be pain, and there will be sorrow and tears and loss, but it is worth it. There will be bounty. There will be joy. Verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall, that is a promise, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Some of you know the song. Ringing in the sheaves, ringing in the sheaves. I don't know why you have to sing it with a Yiddish accent. It just sounds better. (laughs) Just trust me. We will experience disappointment and inconvenience and even sickness and perhaps even death, but God uses that for his reaching of others. So be aware. Be mindful. God still does what God has done. We all have a tendency to drift into some default mindset of, yeah, but really, God saved all that. I'll slide in the back door of heaven one day when I die. No. 
There's a reason God did not rapture you into his presence at the moment of your conversion. You and I are still living emissaries and agents and ambassadors of his coming kingdom now. We are to be mindful of the time that passes in and through us. During these times we experience, we are meant to experience tears and to go through a wide range of feelings. So, just by way of application, let me offer these couple truths from Psalm 126. Number one, we will have tears. We will. Set your expectations accordingly. I hear this all the time. I, I was not a believer, and life was all right. It was hard. It was up and down. And then I became a Christian. Everything got harder. Yeah, huh? This world will hate you, Jesus said, on account of me. In fact, I would contend experientially, secondly, but biblically, primarily, when you become a Christian, you actually experience and enjoy grief and feelings of sorrow more than you ever have before because you're aware of the situation. You're aware of people that are apart from and outside of the covenant community of God. There is more sorrow and grief at times, but it is seeds of joy. There was once a perfect human heart, the ultimate perfect human being. He cried. He wept a great deal. He's described as a man of sorrows, and he allowed himself to deeply enter into pathos and pain of other people. I'm so glad that he did. I'm so glad that John 11:35 is in our Bible. Jesus wept. But when tears come, we have to have already decided how we will respond. Again, Dallas Willard puts it this way, it is impossible to master feelings by willpower in the moment of choice. Decide in advance when the grief comes, when the phone call comes, when the sorrow hits, decide in advance, how am I going to use this? How am I going to ask and allow God to use this and trust that he is? This is how Christians should deal with tears or sorrows or griefs or sadness. Number one, expect tears. Expect it. Set your expectations accordingly. They will come. They're supposed to. That great theological treatise called The Princess Bride, great movie. Life is pain. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. Set your expectations accordingly. Number two, invest those tears. Don't waste the pain. Recognize that God is doing a thing. Recognize the forging that he is doing. Three, pray those tears. Turn them back to God. He knows already, and he can handle it. So number one, again, we will have tears. Number two, we will experience deep feelings. Yes, there was once a perfect human heart, and he experienced feelings deeply. And yes, Christians are supposed to feel intensely, and that's okay. But again, how exactly? Well, there's three different schools of thought in the world in which we live. And I want to bring Psalm 126 to give a, a little bit of a train track for how we are to deal with our feelings and our emotions. Because increasingly, in the 21st century, feelings have become masters, and dangerously, deadly so. Three different schools of thought or approaches for how we deal with feelings and emotions in the 21st century. On the one hand, is what I would call legalistic religiosity. What do I mean by that? Well... This is just your own grit, your own willpower. It says to deny or repress your feelings. They're just bad, so stop it. Keep stoic and earn your way to behavior modification. It's actually kind of an ancient heresy. Augustine used to slam his ancient opponent, his opponent named Pelagius for it 1,700 years ago. It's built on human pride. You can earn or achieve and manage the heart of God, that he, the heart that God gave you, but you can't. 
Nobody really can. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful among all things. Nobody can understand it. But good luck, I'm sure you'll be the first. That last part was just me giving a commentary. No, that's what religiosity or behavior modification or legalism says. Just suppress your feelings and don't feel. Reduce, minimize the pain. That's one angle of approach. Or there's the other approach called secular humanism. It says to center and focus on your feelings. They're good. It's the stuff of every Disney movie in the last 40 years. Just follow your heart. Don't do that. You'll die. Your heart wants to kill you. The, 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 the secular humanism says focus on your feelings. They're, they are functionally God of your life. Pursue whatever you want. Whereas religiosity is stoic, meaning pain avoidance. Secular humanism is Epicurean. Pursue pleasure at all costs. By the way, did you just a little sociology lesson here? Every society, every people group ever, ever in human history, they all begin as Stoic. They all collapse and end as Epicurean. They all start, every single one of them, you can mark it down, but we'll surely be different. <laughs> they all start with saying, just manage your feelings, repress them, avoid pain. But by the end of the cycle, it's just whatever, if it feels good, do it. And the next thing you experience is a smoldering crater. We need to keep that in mind. It elevates feelings above all else. We become hollow emotional junkies, just going from the next endorphin drip to the next. There's a third approach for how we deal with our feelings and our emotions, and it is the gospel. All right? It's the gospel. Take your feelings to the throne of God and approach his presence with boldness. This psalm is here to remind us that God can handle our praying with ferocity and honesty. When's the last time you yelled at God? Oh, I have. I have in my marriage, with my children, with my church, with an ailing father, with an unrepentant, unredeemed family member. You know what? God never once said, now that's quite enough. Do you know who you're talking to? He never did. Never. In fact, it was one of the most sweetest moments of intimacy to just go, oh, I've heard it. I know. Now you get a glimpse of how I feel. Take your tears to the throne. We have too many decisions to make on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if we're not careful, we end up defaulting to deciding by feeling rather than by a sanctified and theologically informed will. That's a disaster. Again, Willard, he says, feelings are good servants. They are disastrous masters. And that's true. The gospel is that Jesus is alive. And his indestructible life is offered to us. And that includes the capacity to feel deeply and to pray and process those feelings with God, just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, God still does what God has done. Psalm 126 is a great charge and a reminder for us as believers to see the world around us as it could be, not as it necessarily is. That's vision. That's perspective. That's wisdom. That's faith. May we be like those who dream. We remember the exhilarating release of captivity. I'm not any longer who I was. We envision the harvest of souls being brought to life by a gracious God, sometimes through my demonstration of suffering well. We pray fervently, we grow communities, we build leaders, and we live generously because of who God is and what he has done. That's who we are. And so we, when we 
fail and when we fall and when we're fleshy, we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we see him modeling Psalm 126 perfectly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together in your presence, in fellowship with the saints. I do pray, God, that you will give us wisdom to meander and mosey through time and the moments thereof, that our thoughts, our feelings would ever be increasingly sanctified, that would bring you honor. When we are grieving, I know there are those in this room that are experiencing sorrow. Would you comfort them that those bits of anguish and grief are planted and they will produce fruit of joy. For the rest of us, Father, who are experiencing a season of joy, would you ready us for when that's not the case? All, Father, so that this can be a preview of a coming attraction. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you, who is still merely trying to manage their feelings or be somewhat moral. Would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Would you usher them out of death and into life, a great micro-personal exodus? Give us wisdom to know how to disciple that person, Father, and love them well. Again, Father, thank you for church, for your people. We pray that you would continue to sound forth by the gospel. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.